What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of FilmmakerU.com. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell, and this week we're going to be interviewing Rocco Matteo. He is a production designer who just did Rabbit Hole for Prime. We're going to start with that, talk for about 20-ish minutes on that, but then you'll notice we kind of veer off and just start talking about architecture, because Rocco originally studied architecture, and we end up talking about that for quite a while, because we discover we're in the same city, and start talking about buildings specific to Toronto. So, if you're interested, after about 20 minutes, it becomes a talk about architecture, but if you want to hear about the production design, the first 20 minutes will cover that. Now, with all that said, you can always check out FilmmakerU.com and get 10% off using the promo code THECUTTINGROOM. FilmmakerU.com is the place to get the top people in the industry teaching you their approach to doing their craft. And you can check it out at FilmmakerU.com for 10% off The Cutting Room, all one word. Now, with all that said, here's my interview with Rocco. When you're coming up for like the look of this show... Uh, like, what would you say was the, sort of the the motif that you were you came up with with the director and the the writers? The brief from the writer directors was they really just wanted everything to be real, and so they were going to write specific places, which they did. You know, there were we. I learned early on that there was going to be a kind of symmetry of the relationship between the protagonist, John Weir, and his best friend. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was going to be a kind of primary visual idea of the show. Um, and then a kind of sense of a road movie, which is, you know, what happens when the when the, the plot really starts to move along. So the other brief, the other aspect of this was hmm, we want to invoke um, the grandeur of, you know, a big city capital like New York and the potential for, you know, large architectural volumes um, in the way that we saw things like that in like 70s American thrillers. Mm -hmm. So that was a kind of a, a visual ask, which is look for spaces like that, look for something like that. And then the last aspect of this, which was kind of left hanging was, oh, and by the way, the show is a puzzle. And the primary issue with that is we are unsure if it's real or a delusion. And so see if you can work with that. I took that to heart, which is, okay, what do I do to kind of, you know, uh, embrace real spaces, create real spaces, real environments that have scope, but then fundamentally um, detail them in such a way that I can imply the disquiet or the confusion that the protagonist lives with. So um, that aspect, that last aspect, um, kind of prompted me to think about some things 
um, in the way we design the sets, which is, you know, how to create a sense of um, enclosure while we're doing spaces that are very open. And I can get more into it, but so it'll, it'll kind of a long-winded response to your question. Um, the, the challenge was how to make something real, looking real, but kind of allude to the psychological issues at play in the story. That's really interesting because one of my questions is there's a lot of mental sort of play in here. And how did you take that into account when designing the show? Uh, so it's right up the where I was looking for. Like, I just think about the two characters, like John's office is sort of that darker, like brick, but high ceilings. And then like his friends, that clean. So, like, so that's exactly, you know, that's that interesting dichotomy that I learned about when I first read the scripts and asked the writers. So tell me a little bit about these guys. And they said, well, certain things should be obvious. You know, we wrote that Weir's character is traditional, almost like a Luddite. You know, he's like, oh, he doesn't have credit cards. He uses cash. He doesn't have a smartphone. Um, he likes things that are small and controllable. So very much, you know, the, um, and then let me, let me point out one thing. When approaching designing the spaces for these two, they're based on some real world entities that the writers directed me towards. They said, look at this and look at this. They're actually real companies that we're kind of riffing on. Uh, maybe you can find out a bit more about them. So I did, and I'm kind of, you know, so a combination of research and speculation led me to think, okay, so Weir is in downtown Manhattan in a very grounded environment, brick and mortar, heavy timber, uh, very tactile old materials. We designed the space that was across the entire floor of, you know, of this warehouse. Um, but it allowed me to play with things like, when do we have views outside and when don't we? So level changes, playing with the heights. And then using the kind of motif of industrial glass material, reeded glass, pebbled glass, sometimes clear glass, to set some like intimacy and limits to the immediate space, but you're always aware of the larger space. Once I kind of felt that was appropriate for, for Weir, which was... You know, he's in the city, he's downtown, they know where to find him, but there's still a sense of groundedness and privacy um, that he can feel comfortable in. So his best friend, and you, and we learn in the story at some point, they were actually partners together when they founded the company. And then they made a decision to split and pursue different aspects of that world. So the valences environment is really a it's the flip side of the same coin so what we have is again a kind of a broad floor plan divided by many kind of glass dividers um, the views outside are 
much more extensive. And unlike, you know, Weir's is, it's downtown, it has a view, but it's really kind of nestled, you know, in the city. Um, Valence has a towering overview, right? So the first thing was we wanted that. We wanted something which wasn't demure, but, you know, essentially about power. View, yeah. you know, equals power. The second thing, the transparency, and then introducing a kind of like a scope of staff, you know, the the bullpen, the data analysts floor. They wanted to convey a sense that they're presenting an image of data and technology is the future and it can be benign. Look, we don't have anything to hide. And so when, you know, Valence brings John in for a tour of the space, it brings us into that world and just, and just says, look, everything is visible. Everything's out in the open. We don't have anything to hide. Well, that's the case simply because we also notice that they're in an electronic fishbowl. They're being watched. So unlike, you know, where's environment where we're self-consciously aware that we're trying to avoid cameras there, it's like you're on show. And so, um, and that introduces, you know, in a sense, kind of the uh, a hint at the the materiality and its opposite, which is yes, the more transparent it is, um, and the more ephemeral it feels, it's actually a kind of fortress of technology. And what's revealed later is what the the surveillance aspect means and how it is, you know, powerful in controlling everyone, you know, and giving a sense of anxiety about that. In our search for locations, how we augmented them, how we detailed them, that it was always a kind of a balancing act. So if I did something on Weir's side, I would find its equivalent on Valence's side to, and to play that out, you know. Weir's office is very small and intimate where you sit across the table. You had the same scene in uh, Valence's office, but we started it where, you know, Weir sat way off across the room and then, you know, made his way slowly up to Valence's desk, you know. That's really what's interesting about that is when we're first in Weir's office, it feels like when we have that there's like a wide shot and you can see uh, them, their desks together, Yeah. but it feels like it's a large space, but then controlled with light to make it smaller or feel yeah. smaller. So is that something that you guys did with the cinematographers? Is How did that work? Yes. I mean, you know, the cinematographers definitely wanted me to always provide scope. They said, you know, Rocco, whatever you do, if you want intimacy, let's play with the materiality. Don't make the spaces necessarily smaller. We'll do that. We'll find a way to put the camera and um, and quite frankly, we went a lot of the work we did was playing with the glass and what it would do under different kinds of light. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Brendan would love to pull focus 
and sometimes let the backgrounds go soft because he loved the way the light on the other side of the glass, two bays down, would filter through the reed of glass and then, you know, kind of create a certain effect, you know. Um, it was also helpful, I guess, to, you know, illuminate the actors a certain way. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, I guess, you know, the interesting thing is the, the world of the DBA, of Weir Space, was very shadowy and dark. As much as that might create a sense of anxiety, it was fundamentally still the safe space in the story. Whereas the environments that were sunny and illuminated and clean, um, ultimately that started to represent much more a sense of like, you're overexposed and you are in danger. Which is yeah. interesting because like, I do have a question, but I, I'm nervous about asking it. So if you want us to cut it out, but I want to talk about the suicide and sort mm -hmm. of, because that feels like it plays into the building itself in a weird way. Yeah, yes. Yeah. I, but I don't, again, if you want us to cut that out because you don't want to spoil it, we can. Well, you know, the funny thing is, um, I, what I can say about it is, it is unexpected for us as much as it will be for the audience when they see it. Mm -hmm. And on some level, um, it's never really fully explained or resolved. So, um, but essentially, the probably the, the necessity of having that environment or its, its kind of the culmination of having that environment led to that, which is, you know, um, well, it is, it is also the flip side of what happens at the DBA, which is our safe space that's grounded and, and feels secure, they have to resort to something very drastic to change the narrative above that, you know, which is to blow up the floor. So I think that the, that the symmetry of the spaces and the characters also arrived at the symmetry of these two very traumatic effects which is, you know, the audience is meant to be really like blown away, like, oh my God, what did I just see, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, but then the truth behind both is complicated. Well, that makes me wonder, and you would know more than I do, but like, I think about like, what's odd is we're sort of attracted to that minimalist or clean aesthetic. Yeah. And yet there's more comfort in that style that Weir's office is in, right? Like I feel when I'm, I see like a nice clean office, whether it's Apple's building or whoever, sure, it, it feels like, oh, that's like something that you're wanting. That's why the phones do well, all that stuff. Cause it's nice, clean, minimalist. Yeah. But there seems to be more of a comfort in the old sort of architecture style. Is that something like, I don't, I guess what I'm asking is like, is that, something you see or is that absolutely in, in fact you know having spent time creating both spaces and so valence's office and the balcony and the outer office we built on the stage and they were literally right next to the dba space which the entire floor is built on the stage yeah and yeah i think you know 
we took turns spending time in each space. And it's like, yeah, you know, sitting in this office, it's like we would have an art department meeting in Valence's office to say, well, how does this feel? It's like, yeah, this is good. But um, I guess there's something a bit more performative about being in that corporate environment, which yeah. is you're always aware of having to, to, to tidy up after yourself, which is, you know, when we were in the DBA, it was kind of like the more mess you made, the more it looked like it was supposed to look like. Yeah. So, um, yeah, for me, there's, there's definitely not a preference in terms of what I would gravitate to. Um, I'm quite fond of that industrial language architecture. Chances are um, you'd find a way to make it even more open. But, you know, given the scenario of what of we were also trying to communicate that, yeah, this is a space that had a prior history to on some level make do with what you inherit as opposed to something that is purpose-built and supposedly a kind of an ideal reflection of what you are, you know? For me, it was um, exciting to do both and to do them both at the same time because, like I said before, each action, I found a way to make a kind of complementary move that was interesting for us, you know, on the, on the artist side. Now, outside of Rabbit Hole, is there a particular art movement or creative movement that you take a lot of inspiration from or really enjoy as a production designer? Being trained as an architect, I'd say minimalist modern is kind of where my headspace would normally go to. Mm -hmm. But in a way, um, having made the move in working in the, you know, the world of film and television, it really expanded my mind to accept the parallels between different um, architectural styles and different modes in within history. Mm -hmm. And so um, in actual fact, like a contemporary modern like Arda and its precedents going back, say, 100 years to a warehouse space that had that was, you know, as open and as spacious as we got yeah. in an earlier form of architecture, they really kind of operate the same way. And so I really appreciate the fact that, you know, working in movies has allowed me to kind of go back and examine architecture from different perspectives to see um maybe on a kind of phenomenal level, how things are similar. You know, they're they're rendered in different ways in different materials. And the styles maybe, you know, symbolize certain beliefs or um, help locate it within a kind of a time frame, mm -hmm. but their their attitudes are very similar. So, you know, so yeah, I I I find like I'm, I'm very happy to kind of play in the world of early modernity um, or even in kind of like colonial rustic styles, because yeah. at some point you're always dealing with, you know, similar phenomena. Now, what was it that made you go from architecture to production design? I mean, it's interesting. Um, 
it's one of those things where, you know, life happens when you're busy making plans. And uh, <laughs> I was always interested in, in film as an art form, more as an academic kind of pursuit. So, you know, I actually was in a, you know, an experimental film collective. I studied film academically in art school which I took as a, as a kind of parallel sort of educational thing to architecture. You know, in our conversations in the 70s and 80s in architecture, um, referencing filmic space was not unusual. So it's something that I was already kind of like um, very aware of. I think that the move into it professionally was just a sort of happy accident, you know, um, the combination of a lack of work in architecture and my interest in, you know, other art forms where you start to freelance. Like I freelanced doing drawings, technical drawings for people in theater. Um, so I worked on small theater projects and um, on opera projects, you know, doing stage work. And then an art director in film saw my drawings and said, hey, can you help me do something on this? And so a gradual revelation of uh, kind of, you know, the movement of different kinds of artistic endeavor with drawing, I just kind of followed it and uh, yeah, ended up in in television and film now just to make sure you're in toronto correct i am okay because i'm also in toronto oh and i'm interested to hear then because i feel like living in the city is very bittersweet because it's amazing and frustrating at the same time oh yes <laughs> um, yes we could talk about that <laughs> and well and what i'm thinking is like you're talking about arts and i think about how like there's like this pushing of artists out of the city like i know so many artists have moved to hamilton several sure. years ago because it's more affordable and like what have you or but also like when I think of our spaces I think about how we very much destroy our history yeah to quickly rebuild something else uh, so there's very few nice old buildings but I'm wondering there are some interesting the architecture frustrates me but I also love it like I think about all the pieces that we have that are like nothing else in the world so is there something in the city architecturally that you're like, that's a really cool thing you need to check out? Yes. I mean, I, I could, I could talk about that. Um, first point being, you know, it's well, it's well taken, which is one of the sad things about um, the, the, the kind of progression, the progress of rebuilding a city or expanding a city is how um, progress has often meant completely um, reworking or eliminating older layers of city, of urbanism. Yeah. I think where we've been lucky or have done well is where we can introduce new things and still manage to work them into something that exists that had been working well. Mm -hmm. um, and also from the point of view of a kind of um, tangible, variety or expansiveness of palette because the one thing about the way new buildings are built in Toronto is there's a certain homogeneity across cities all over North America and perhaps the world now which is 
that you know style design intent uh, materiality it's it's kind of the same everywhere and so what might have been unique about one city now they're they're all looking the same our skylines our our downtown cores yeah yeah so um wherever we can kind of identify something unique a unique condition and make it the most and and kind of develop it so that we retain that it's important um so you know it's funny you should say one of my first jobs kind of as a uh, while I was a student, was for the Historical Society, believe it or oh, not. Yeah. And it was one of those things where I, uh, it was a summer job and a part-time job through the year, which was to help the Historical Society um, document and record um, old buildings that were in bad shape or were in kind of at that transition where it was like, can be, can that house be saved? And um, given a kind of new life or that building, or is it going to just be, you know, recorded and torn down? Yeah. So that was kind of like, a, for me, a deep dive into some of the history of the city. Um, you know, I worked on a project where I documented a huge warehouse complex that had a clock tower yeah. that had been designed by the same firm that had designed the old city hall. And ultimately that building doesn't exist at all anymore. Um, but it was a venue full of artists. Yeah. Um, all kinds of craft artists, painters, lithographers, photographers, performance artists. And so, yeah, I was a young person running around documenting every space in that building going into artist spaces saying, wow, what is this? What do you do? Yeah. And why are you here? And so it's exactly what you what you say it was like, it was the an incubator for massive artistic creativity mm -hmm. on the edge of downtown um, in a district that also had like, you know, interesting bars for music and, you know, watering holes where different people, um, you know, um, artists would hang out with factory workers, would hang out with street people, right? And so the, you know, the evolution of the city has meant that, as you say, the artists can't hang out downtown, they have to go somewhere else, you know, obviously the street people, same thing. Uh, workers are now, you know, in the suburbs. That's all where they can afford to live. And so, yes, um, we've lost something there yeah. by um, the, you know, the interests of just gentrification and development. Yeah. Um, one of the buildings that's being talked about these days, it's one of my oldest favorite buildings is Ontario Place. Oh yeah, that's huge discussion. You know, and so Ontario Place is is weird because you know, in a way it's a kind of um it's an it's an older complex and a time capsule about what we thought the future might look like mm -hmm. 40 years ago, 50 years ago. It's like, oh, in the future, this is what the world will look like. And so on some level, um, 
it's a time capsule with maybe slightly quaint or you know slightly off ideas but on the other hand there was a lot of um bold optimism mm -hmm. about what that was and what it wanted to do and promote that you know i uh, there's a lot of us hope that um whatever happens to that it it isn't lost architecturally yeah, you know and and programmatically like and the science um, center because <laughs> they're trying well yeah exactly and the science center and it's also very much like that yeah. you know it's you know it was an interpretation of a kind of unusual landform that kind of interesting valley condition it was out of town when it was built but yeah I mean the 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 language of the concrete and the plains and yeah in Ontario Place being a kind of lightweight building that hovers over water uh, and then has a landscape that grounds it, you know, with pavilions and domes. And, uh, you know, years ago when they took out the forum, I remember thinking that was a sad, that was a sad move because yeah. there was a kind of like landscape architectural element that a lot of young people had happy memories about you know mm -hmm. you got to see shows that were generally free um just physically you know what it represented was very cool hopefully that's not going to be lost I, I really hope not to well and it's interesting that you talked about the building where it was like an incubator for creatives because my first mm -hmm. job in the film industry was in liberty village Right, but it was like Liberty Village before what it is today, where it was like literally it used to be a factory, and every single place was an artist or yeah. an independent of some sort, and they were all just sort of working together, and it was amazing. Yeah, and then you go there now, and it's really sad. <laughs> like it's amazing in a different way, but it's kind of sad. Yeah, it is. I mean, off. you know, it's I guess it's kind of the ongoing history of cities, which is yeah. there's always a a community of souls that live in the fringes that help interpret that and, and create a kind of like, you know, using a creativity and uh, an excitement to showcase possibility. And um, yeah, I, I do wonder, like at some point you run out of city space, like, yeah. you know, so a lot of them have gone to Hamilton. Now it's starting to happen there. Yeah. Where are we gonna go next, you know? Um, I think perhaps the countryside might be the next place to go, you know, um, but there is something about um, access to cities where it's possible to have to have connections between a lot of different communities. Yeah. It's kind of essential. So yeah. we've got to figure yeah. out a way to do that. I have to ask you because I the OCAD shoebox. What are you yeah. talking on that? Because when it first came out, it was remember there's that website in Toronto where it's like worst cool. architecture and it won the award that year. But since then I've learned more about it and it's sort of changed my view. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um I don't often think about that. Maybe it's because I always drive by it and it's so yeah. up, out of my eye line. Yeah. That I hardly ever notice it. For me. It's a kind of a bold gesture that ironically isn't very experienced. Like I know I never really experience it. It's something yeah. you notice if you're across the park and down the street and look up 
And you yeah. can see it. It's like, oh, yeah, right. That thing is there. I notice other buildings much more than I notice that one. Yeah. Um, you know, if I am on my bike around Queens Park, there's a, you know, a building, the Leslie Dan building, which is the pharmacy center on the yeah. corner, especially at night. Like I notice that one way more than yeah. I notice other things. What I notice kind of increasingly is all through the downtown in the oldest neighborhoods where there's still like pockets of houses. Yeah. I'll start noticing like, you know, new um, intricate shoe boxes, you know, interesting sort of like shaped and um, houses and uh, I don't know, there are live workspaces, what have you. So I, I'm noticing a bit of that here, there, and everywhere, which I think is cool. Well, what I heard then, about, um, sorry. And then, you know, that, that, that new development that's uh, between King and Adelaide. Yeah. You know, that's going to be interesting to see if that materializes the way it's rendered, yeah. you know, where it's a kind of like man in his world, but with a whole kind of green aspect to it, you know? Yeah. The shoebox, the reason I brought it out, because I like I hated it when I first saw it. And then someone was explaining to me that the reason it's built that way was I guess the building that's there could they they couldn't they couldn't take the weight of expanding up. Right. And they wanted to expand to the side, but the park was there. And so the and they were like, okay, well, they bought the air rights or whatever, and that's the only way they could sort of do it to expand the school. Right. And I, was I mean, like, oh, yeah, I, I guess that's a pretty ingenious solution. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to remember. I don't think I've actually ever been in it, but I um, I have, um, you know, nephews and uh, and my goddaughter are graduates from that program. And they yeah. both said, yeah, you know, it's pretty cool being in there. Yeah. And you don't necessarily know because like you get up into the space ascending at an angle yeah so i guess it's like the stairs or the escalator takes you up that way i should probably try to experience it to see what that's like you know yeah well i do have one last question for you sure uh, we could talk architecture all day i love architecture i didn't study it and i regret not studying it um what would you say is your favorite guilty pleasure film or tv show to watch um currently or in the past or you i can do both so i guess by guilty pleasure there has to be something about it where it would be, you know, somewhat uh, surprising that we would want to consider it in a serious way. I guess there's a there's a couple of things. Um, very often I'm dragged into watching programs because my partner will say, you know, like she runs the kind of uh, television viewing at certain hours. So it's like, oh, you have to watch this. So I've started watching something that she regularly watches, which is Coronation Street. Oh, no way. Even though it's like implausible on so many levels. <laughs> yeah. Um, I will come and go. And it's like, if she's watching it, I'm like, oh, what's going on? What's what did he do? <laughs> so um, there's something comforting about watching it with her. But here's the irony. So a little while back, and it might have been, I mean, I don't know, the darkest parts of the winter, we were doing that thing where we were just kind of like, let's find something that we hadn't seen on Netflix 
and I dug up Copenhagen Cowboy. Um, I was kind of riffing on that director's work, and I just wanted. I was. I had seen some um, some of his movies, and I said, "Hey, let's look at this. This sounds interesting." And I made my partner watch it. Um, definitely not her cup of tea, right? Um, but we made ourselves kind of get into it, and it was actually very rewarding. You know, I started telling other people about it. And when they went and saw it, they were just saying, what is this? Why did you make us watch this? <laughs> you know, as a kind of like dramatic fairy tale with a very, very, um, you know, unique um, visual palette with a hot and cold temperature lighting plan that's kind of front and center to his aesthetic. Yeah, I, I, I've, you know, I've had to justify watching it to a number of people, but mm -hmm. I really look at that and say, you know, I'd love stuff like that. Thank you so much for letting me interview you today. Thanks. It was, uh, it was fun talking to you. And look at that. You're in the same city, you know, yeah. <laughs> maybe we'll run into each other somewhere. Yeah. Oh, probably. If you, especially yeah. if you're on the studio a lot. Yeah, I'll look for you. So that's my interview with Rocco. I want to thank Rocco for allowing me to interview him. I also want to thank my producer, Jason Banky. I want to thank the editor and sound designer, Evan Winch, for working on this episode. Remember, you can get 10% off at FilmmakerU.com with the promo code THECUTTINGROOM, all one word. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>